I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. about the English Reformation from the political side, um, all of the stuff that Henry and Thomas Cromwell and Thomas More and Archbishop Cranmer were doing to further the Reformation through Acts of Parliament and you know, all of the political drama there, how, our, uh, how the queens were wrapped up in all of that. But today we're actually going to switch gears slightly and we're going to be talking about the actual religious reformation that's going on in England. Because contrary to what we've been saying about how the English Reformation is almost purely a political movement, that's not to say that there wasn't also intellectual um, and theological debate happening in England at the time. In fact, that's where a lot of our key players come from. People like Thomas Cranmer became reformed through their education. So that's what we want to talk about today is the ideological intellectual reformation, what's going on with all of the debate and namely the books and the writing. Yeah, with this one, I think what we're aiming to do more than anything is not get too hot and heavy into the actual theology of things, you know, with the dotting the I's and the crossing of the T's of the, the theological scripts. But yeah, really... we've already talked about transubstantiation. <laughs> We're not going to go there again. Promise. <laughs> yeah, no, th th this one's a little bit more about the impact. So what we're going to focus on instead of the actual theology, as Callie said, is what it looked like within the new Church of England when the Church of England first began. So we're really focusing on the late 1530s here. And one of the biggest changes to come about, if not the biggest one during this period of the Reformation, is the creation of the Bible in English. In 1534, we have the likes of Archbishop Cranmer petitioning Henry to um, sign a decree so that Holy Scripture could be translated into the vulgar English tongue by certain good and learned men to be nominated by his majesty and should be delivered to the people for their instruction. So this is kind of where we're, we're seeing the start of this, this reformation and for the Bible to be translated into English. Now, what happens in 1535 is that we have this really lovely man called William Tyndall who starts translating the Bible into English, but is ultimately executed for it. So you can see the irony that's starting to unfold there already. Then in 1536, having already executed Tyndale, Henry Tantan's like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, interesting to note that Tyndale's dying words, but right before he was executed, were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Because this was a struggle that a lot of reformers had been going through, not just in the 1530s, but for years. Like we said in the first episode, this was one of the pillars of the Reformation, was the ability for everybody to read or even hear, um, you know, have church services in the vernacular languages so that you can actually understand what your religion is about. I mean, it seems like, you know, we take it for granted now of, of course, you should know it's in the Bible and you should read the Bible. But Back then, you could only do it if you could understand a higher language. So um, somebody like William Tyndale, yeah, was being persecuted for bringing this or trying to bring this to the masses. And that's what uh, Henry 
did not want. That was sort of where he clung to his conservative religious beliefs for as long as possible until the 1530s when the Cranmers and the Cromwells come out. And to some extent, the uh, the Anne Boleyns. Uh, Anne Boleyn's family was really influential in this period as well. They all had what would can be considered dangerous reformer texts. And Anne owned a copy of Tyndale's Bible, it should be said, but also a Bible in French. So if you were within her inner circle, you had probably read scripture for yourself. With this, I know we're, we're, we're talking about an intellectual reformation, and I think I think that's really what it is. You know, as you as you just mentioned, Kate, that it's having religion that's accessible to to everybody. But there's the, always that caveat that goes along with, with everything that Henry's involved in. It's the information that you can have as far as I'm going to allow it. So the fact that we've then got people like Anne and her circle who have access to this ahead of time is, I'm going to say revolutionary, and I'm going to, yeah, no, revolutionary. For sure. And actually, a lot of historians credit her with being one of the key influencers of the early Reformation, not just in the whole, uh, the personal life of you need a new wife, I can be that wife, I can give you a son. Certainly influential that way, but also influential in the way that she influenced Henry's policy. And one of the ways she did that was actually through, to use a modern phrase, banned books. She gave Henry a copy of a Tyndale book. It was called Obedience of a Christian Man and How Christian Rulers Ought to Govern. Uh, And it was a book where Tyndale uses the Reformation ideals to say to rulers that basically everything that ended up happening in England, like, yeah, you should have autonomy over your country and your spirituality and not have to bow to a, quote, foreign power, i.e. Rome. So by giving him this, Anne was playing a dangerous card because she was saying that she was reading this stuff, it, that which was technically against the law, it was considered heresy. And yet she knew that Henry would like what he was reading. And that's very much, I think, how Thomas Cromwell approached is getting an English Bible. Because even though Henry was reading this stuff, even though he read that one Tyndale book and liked it, he was still very reluctant to have the masses be able to read and interpret scripture. This was something that was seen as, um, you know, you had to have qualifications to do and to understand scripture. Henry was still on the fence about that. And Cromwell had to come in and say, no, actually, it's a good idea because in this way, your population won't be religiously ignorant. And Henry liked that because the pilgrimage of grace had just happened. He was having all of this popular dissent where where his religious policy was concerned. So he thought, oh, okay, well, maybe if they did read scripture and maybe if they were reading this stuff that, you know, Tyndale's writing about being spiritually independent, they would be on my side. And Cromwell's like, okay, perfect. We're rolling with that full steam ahead. 100%. I, Cromwell, more than anybody, I think, well, Cromwell and Anne, knew how to play the game of know that you know your reformer and know who you're talking to to be able to get people like Henry and especially Henry on their side and I think one of the ways that Cromwell was able to appeal to that side of Henry and his I think it's fair to say struggle between whether he was still a Catholic or a reformer um, one that never really goes away is when he commissioned the King's Bible 
that is written by conservative clergymen and con conservative bishops because what that's doing is allowing Cromwell to have his cake and eat it and allowing him to that ability to say look what I've done I've done it I've got the bible in English and Henry's going to like it too and I think that's always so important the people that were being tasked with translating the bible were as, as you mentioned people with quote-unquote qualifications and that access to that knowledge it's a really interesting middle ground because it's a reformed policy in that people are finally getting scripture in a language that they can understand but it's still conservative scripture it, it, it's sort of like a the first grudging step that you have to take it's a step in the right direction but maybe it's not all that you want yeah and I think I think he knows when to cut his losses right you, you know he he's getting that financial power and that financial gain for Henry to and that gives him the footing that he needs to do what he wants to a certain extent and again, it's it's recognising the limits of his power in the position that he has and being careful not to overstep. But you then got another win for Cromwell when he issues a um, injunction in 1538 when he states that all parishes in England have to have a Bible in the vernacular and it has to be displayed in a, quote, place of prominence. So it's not enough just to have it in the back in the back room, you know, gathering dust or standing on it, you know, when you're delivering in the pulpit on a Sunday, it, it has to be accessible. And I think that's the main thing that we have to come back to and kind of realise with this, because with with that Bible, with the what is now known as the Great Bible, it's not just the words that are important, it's the, the imagery that goes along with it that's so powerful and it puts people in the, the you know, the reformist mind when they're looking at it. Yeah, the, the Great Bible came out in 1539, and not only was it available for reading, it was also sort of in tandem to be read aloud during church services. So the way church services happened before was that when scripture was read, it was in Latin, as we've been saying, but it was also very far removed from the congregation. Uh, even the mass itself, the, you know, the bread and the wine was on the altar away from the general congregation so it was a very impersonal service now with it being in english you can understand it you can follow along better so people start to open up a little bit more and actually have a deeper appreciation for what's going on which is which is a really big moment for the church of england i want to give a brief shout out though to um Miles Coverdale, because I feel like Miles Coverdale doesn't get as many shout outs as William Tyndale, but Miles Coverdale is one of the chief, um, quote, authors of the Great Bible. He worked a little bit with William Tyndale's Bible in the uh, mid 1530s, but now he's one of the people who Cromwell commissions to work on the Great Bible. So shout out to Coverdale. I, I feel like he doesn't get as much, uh, much as much attention as Tyndale. I know. I, I, <laughs> I mean, if you're not being martyred for the cause, does anybody even remember you in history? But of course, with that becomes more debate. The more accessible something is, the more people can argue about it, right, and understand it. So <laughs> now we're getting really interesting theological discussions that wouldn't have necessarily maybe happened before. And people are actually able to question scripture, like are we sure this translation is correct? Are we sure this is what God really means when he says X, Y, and Z? 
I don't know. I just I find that fascinating as well, because it's a can of worms that when opened really starts to freak out Henry. We very much see Henry as an A-type personality come out to play because you see him lose control of a situation he originally had full control over, you know, um, while it's being it's being done to further the Reformation, it also endangers it at the same time. And it, by extension endangers Henry and then puts him in this very much of a precarious position of what have I just done? It's it's like Jurassic Park. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, right? <laughs> right. If we've learned anything from Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, religion finds a way. <laughs> <laughs> But I just love this sort of crisis of Henry because uh, yeah. Henry's, I think often, is, and we're guilty of this on this show as well, Henry's often portrayed as somewhat simple-minded. I think Henry's easily influenced, but Henry actually is a very smart person. He's very, very. well-educated and he loves a good theological debate. That's like one of his favorite things to do is get into the nitty-gritty with somebody mm -hmm. and have an intellectual conversation. So suddenly, though... It's not just him. Like, he can do that. He's educated. He's the king of England. He has that power. You don't want to necessarily, like, though, go to the butchers and have a theological debate with your butcher or your baker or the guy on the street. Henry's like, no, 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 no. Like, we can't have this. The the debate of um, communion in both kinds is not up for Bob and Tom in the pub, in the alehouse, right? No. It reminds me of now modern criticisms of whenever something happens, um, everybody on Twitter becomes an expert in it, you know, and all the people who are actually qualified to talk about it are like, no, 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 no. It, it is the same, but it's not the same, but it is, it is a similar sort of thing that you, like you said, everyone becomes an expert. Everybody has an opinion about something. So Henry has to do something. He has to act quite fast about this. So um, I think you actually found um, a, a rather lovely quote in the build up to this episode, didn't you? I did. Um, in 1545, Henry actually decides that while having everything in the vernacular is great, only certain people are going to be allowed to do it now. So Bob and Tom down at the pub are not going to be able to have access to this anymore. Uh, they might be able to hear about it in church, but as far as reading it and understanding it and having intellectual conversation about it, they're not going to be as well equipped. Sorry, Bob and Tom. <laughs> so yeah, during that parliamentary speech in 1545, he says, And though you be permitted to read Holy Scripture and to have the word of God in your mother tongue, you must understand that it is licensed you so to do only to inform your conscience and to instruct your children and your family and not to dispute and make scripture a railing and a taunting stock against priests and preachers, as many light persons do. That told them. That's that's pretty cut and dry. <laughs> there, there is no room for interpretation there, insofar as interpretation is not allowed unless given to you by me. And at this point, Cromwell has been executed, so Cromwell's not here to pull the string, and Anne, they're not here to pull the strings anymore behind the scenes and slip Tyndale books under the table to Henry they've really kind of gone back to square one Henry's tried this he doesn't like it all right now we have to think of something new what's interesting is that they kind of abandon Henry like once all of this starts to go south really quickly and Henry really clutches to his religious conservatism they look to the next generation so this is where we start to see the education of the king's children, his younger children, uh, Elizabeth and Edward. 
become really important. And it's weird because it doesn't seem like something that Henry would go along with. But then his children, his younger children, end up being so Protestant <laughs> that you're almost like applauding all of these all these reformed educators who were like slowly behind the scenes setting up for when Henry is dying. It's remarkable and it's incredibly clever, I think, because they are putting in place a world that they want to carry on without him. This is where we uh, we set up part two of our episode by mentioning that the children's education is really, really set up by their stepmother, their final stepmother, Catherine Parr, our sixth queen. It's down to her that they get some of the specific tutors that they do, but they also have now a parent who is actively interested in reformed teachings and writings and books. So the children are very much influenced by her in that way. And you can tell that that becomes her cause. You know, last episode we were speaking about her um, having to tread carefully as her, you know, she was impacted by the pilgrimage of grace and fledgling relig- um, reformist ideas that you know she was maybe harboring when we encounter Catherine and her religious convictions again they are fully formed and they are out in the open for everybody to see you know to such an extent that she um she only agreed to marry Henry based on the promise that Cranmer made her that she could further her religious convictions and that of her family I say the only reason probably the major reason she agreed to marry Henry um, yeah. was because of this and I think that's so so significant because she appreciated the position and the power that she was going to have not over shaping religious policy you know she wasn't a silly lady she knew that was never going to happen but about the impact and the legacy she could have which really was going to outlive Henry All of this basically has been leading up to our conversation about Catherine Parr. So we'll save that for part two. Cue the music! Our friend Catherine Parr married Henry in 1543. That is when she became the sixth and final of our queens. And as Callie said, she wasn't really thrilled about the marriage itself. She had another offer from somebody she truly was in love with, uh, Thomas Seymour, the brother of Jane Seymour. But she decided that she wanted to become Henry's wife and therefore Queen of England as Kelly said, probably for a myriad of reasons, but one of the chief among these reasons was to further the reformed beliefs. Catherine was somebody who I think was very strategic about how she went about this. She saw it as her calling, so she needed to be sure that she was doing it in an effective way. And something that I found really interesting when researching Catherine, um, a lot of this comes from Linda Porter's biography of Catherine Parr, which is excellent, but um, Catherine Parr, like so many of the reformers, hence the name, wants to reform the church. She lived through the pilgrimage of grace. She's seen the effects of civil war and discontent and factions. She just wants everybody to get along, basically. So where she thinks she can be most useful as a reformer is working within the established Church of England to make it better. And this is what you can really see in her career as a religious writer. 
many of her religious texts are from surprising sources and we might consider them to be a little bit more conservative, but her thing was really what unites us about our spirituality and how can I make it accessible for everybody. People haven't often looked for her contribution to the Reformation, so by and large, sometimes it's missed. We've mentioned this in some other episodes, but one of the things that Catherine is really known for at this point, not as much anymore, you know, we still get her as the quiet widow wife who, you know, nursed Henry when his leg hurt. But while she wasn't doing that, she was actually having these intellectual conversations within her own household. It makes me think of later, hundreds of years later, when all of the influential women of Paris are having these salons and talking about philosophy. Like, Catherine was doing something very similar. We, I think we've jokingly called them prayer circles before, but she was getting all of these, again, banned books and talking about them with her ladies. And she was making sure that everybody had access to all of this stuff within her household. She was very interested in having these discussions. And it wasn't just the banned books. It was all sorts of stuff that they could question and they could have healthy conversations about. It is the women, Catherine Parr and Anne Boleyn, who are wanting to do that and to kind of open the the religious floodgates in a way and allow everybody in. But there's always that limiting presence in in the form of Henry that's, that's stopping that. Catherine actually wrote a lot of her stuff while she was queen, while Henry was was still alive. Like, she took that risk. It wasn't just when her husband was dead. But like we said, her, her influences are coming from sort of a weird place. So Catherine's first published writing, and just before I get into this, I just want to say this is revolutionary in the sense that not only as a queen of England writing and publishing books, but Catherine Parr is also the first woman to publish anything in English only in her own name. So, like, a landmark of women's history as well for, for Catherine Parr. Her first work was published anonymously, interestingly enough, in 1544, the year after she became queen, and it's called Psalms or Prayers Taken Out of Holy Scripture. It is a translation of a work that was originally in Latin, and can you guess the author? Because it's someone that completely blindsided me. Oh, who is it? Fisher. Bishop John no. Fisher. Yeah. No. Yeah. He he wrote this Stop work. It. It's a collection of, as the title says, psalms and prayers that he wrote in Latin. And Catherine chose a few that she really liked and translated them into English and published them. Interesting. Isn't it? So like we said, it's it's not necessarily going right for the the reform. It's going back to the original English conservative religion. Well, again, you know, I, as we mentioned, uh, literally in the same episode, you know, she would have grown up with this faith. So it's not surprising. However, when you put a name to it, like Fisher, our very much ardent Catholic friend, the mind doth boggle. I have a, a little bit more information about this one just because I thought it was, was so interesting. You know, she did write it anonymously, so people didn't right away know that it was written by the Queen of England. But within the court, it became really popular. Uh, Catherine even ordered, like, gift versions of it, like the, the pretty um, gift versions of books that we see today with, like, the gold edges and leather covers. She ordered these to give out I to people really at court. I really hope she got royalties from that just for buying them. She herself. did, actually. And she actually became what basically we would call a bestseller. Like, people loved this work to the point that 
many of the things that she translated for this book were set to music and you all still sing them in church in England today. Like the prayer for the king, for example, it was something that Fisher wrote, she translated, and now I guess you would call the prayer for the queen. Like it's something that's still used today. What a collaboration. I know, who would have thunk? But like I said, she she became our modern version basically of a, a best-selling author to the point that she was encouraged to write another work. This one is sort of an original work. It's kind of it's kind of a weird one. This is called Prayers or Meditations. It was published in 1545. And though Catherine wrote it and translated and reworked it, she was actually working from the German. It's based on a German devotional text that she reworked to better fit with the Church of England. This one's interesting, though, because everybody knew that she had written it. There was no secret there, but also it was feeding into Henry's propaganda about the Church of England. It was her her way of trying to make something like Cromwell with the Great Bible that Henry would like and he would be flattered by, even though it wasn't wholly what she wanted in terms of the, the liberal reform. I suppose that makes sense when 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 you really think about it, because, you know, Henry had reverted back to a lot of his conservative supporters and very tight knit circles. So I think it makes a lot of sense that, you know, whilst appealing, trying to appeal to him religiously, she's going to have to tread very carefully and give him a very watered down version of her of her reformation. It shows, though, her her passion, too, for creating this church like I think she recognized her role in coming into this newly established church in its early days and having the power to kind of shape it into whatever she wanted that's really I think her her purpose as queen and you really see it come out in here because it's written from the point of view of an English person of an English Christian so it's not necessarily about her as a person it's about her people and the people of her church her third work though, is potentially her most popular. I say popular, none of her writings are popular to the point where I couldn't find a full version of any of them online um, in the public domain. They're just not well-known texts, which is which is very sad. But in, in her lifetime, this was perhaps her, her best known and most important work, Lamentation of a Sinner. This was 100% Catherine's work like nobody doubted it it was wholly original her name was on it and she wrote it from her own point of view so this is a work that traces basically Catherine's religious journey it's not autobiographical in the sense that it gives us anything juicy about like when she first started having these beliefs but it does show how they developed and what the reformation looked like from her point of view She's not writing this as a queen of England. She's writing this as a Christian. The reason it's called the lamentation of a sinner is because she says that just because she's queen of England doesn't mean she's any less of a sinner than anybody else. She's really humbling herself here. And I think people are really drawn to that because she's advocating for all of this reform, but she's doing it just as a person, just as a Christian who's in search of salvation. It takes away the politics of religion. And I, th I don't think any mistake can be made about this, that, you know, politics is very much embedded into the Church of England. And I think one of the lovely things that Catherine tries to do is put the personal back into the centre of religion. Certainly. And juxtapose that with the image of Henry that we've been taught over the years of this man who, and 
you know, accurate to some extent, this man who thinks that he does no wrong, who's the head of everything, who is the only one who can know about any of this religion stuff, you know, Catherine's here saying, yes, I am the Queen of England. Yes, I am in a highly privileged position and I'm closer to God than you are, but that doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes. I'm a sinner just like any of you. And the reformed belief of equality in the eyes of God is very much on display here. This endears me a lot to Catherine. This is, I think, a really great example of the magnanimity of a queen. I honestly think she would have made a great school teacher. Yeah, but I mean, you can see why her stepchildren were so fond of her. Definitely. What I love most about Catherine Parr, and especially her journey on her, her reformist journey, is her intellectual curiosity more than anything else. Yeah, even in the snippets I read of Lamentation of a Sinner, where she's dragging the Catholic Church, she does it in a very polite way. Well, at one point she calls it riffraff, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> but all the other times, it's like she's explaining why that's not the path that she chose, uh, which, with everything else going on, seems like the milder route to take. Definitely. There's no, she's not starting any wars over this. She's not kidnapping the Pope over this. No, calling calling Catholicism riffraff is like the latest thing you could possibly do in the 1540s. I think that's brilliant. So as Callie said before, Lamentation of a Sinner wasn't published until after Henry's death. It was published in 1547. However, Catherine actually started writing it while she was queen. So it must have been a very strategic decision not to publish it until after Henry's death and after her stepson Edward, who was very Protestant, was in the position of power. Because, as we said, it is very blatantly reformist. Like, this is all of her personal beliefs on full display. But when she was first writing it, she had to be really, really careful because at court, it was a very open secret her beliefs. Everybody knew what was going on. And as we've said before, this was a time when the religious conservative faction at court is gaining a lot more traction than it had in the 1530s. Henry's being a little bit more swayed by them, and especially by Stephen Gardner, the Bishop of Winchester, who positions himself as like Catherine's public enemy number one. Oh, 100%. And we see them uh, go toe to toe a couple of times. Gar she and Gardner did go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and at one point it got to the, the point where Catherine, it looked like, was going to be third wife to be executed. Gardner had his suspicions for a very long time that Catherine was performing some kind of reform thing in her chambers. Like, I don't think he, yeah, some, it made me think of, like, a witchcraft thing. Like, he, he, he had his suspicions that something was going on here. And even Henry did, because Henry and Catherine were really well-matched intellectually, and they loved to have intellectual debates about theology. A lot of this comes from John Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a, a Protestant text, and you have to take with many grains of salt. But, <laughs> but we know from him that at one point, Gardner actually overheard Catherine and Henry in a quite heated theological debate. And that's when he started to realize that, oh, okay, well, maybe we could get rid of Catherine because Henry seems to be losing his patience with sparring with such an intelligent person. Gardner creates this whole plan to trap Catherine and tell Henry that he thinks that she is a heretic or has association with heretics like the Protestant martyr Anna Skew, for example. Henry actually believed it and signed an arrest warrant for Catherine 
1546, but Catherine somehow heard about it, like the day before she was due to be arrested. Knowing the fate of her predecessors, she apparently fell into hysterics and was terrified. But then being Catherine, she collected herself and she thought, okay, what are we going to do to get out of this? So the first thing she did was tell her ladies to hide all the banned books. Good. Good. Yep. Step one. The second, though, was that she literally went to Henry and tried to cover herself. Henry accused her of sounding very teacher-like, as you said. Like, how dare you sort of know more about this than I do? Who do you think you are, Kate? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. And the quote directly from Fox is, I am but a woman with all the imperfections, not to the weakness of my sex. Therefore, in all matters of doubt and difficulty, I must refer myself to your majesty's better judgment as to my lord and head. God, she is good. So smooth. Yeah, it is very Catherine of her to have a meltdown about something that she's probably living in fear with every single day. You know, my God, they found out about my beliefs. They found my you know, the book that I'm writing, you know, I'm done for, having already two seen women two, other already, go- two yeah. others go. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that she has a game plan ready to go and is able to, you know, wipe away her tears, stand up tall and to go and address it head on is just fantastic. And I, and I love it. My favourite bit of the story, though, is that apparently Henry basically slaps her on the wrist for having these... Yeah beliefs like well I've heard you say some Protestant things before and she so brilliantly covers herself by saying she was just playing the devil's advocate because she knows how much he enjoys a lively theological discussion and she just wants to distract him from his pain god she would have made a good lawyer I know like you're just you're just so in pain all the time my lord I just want to you know distract you from it and this is the best way to do it and he's like yep makes sense (laughs) I I think it's great. She's so what a what a good wife she is. You know, these ideas wouldn't have been her own. This is about the time that she's writing Lamentations of a Sinner. It's which is just oh my god, like you know, you, you've already had this scare. Jane Seymour, he said much less to her. She didn't have an arrest warrant signed for her, and she knew to back down at that point. Catherine yeah. very strategically gets out of it, and she has her moment of panic, but then she just picks right back up with it. I, you have to admire the bravery, I think, of it and the the will to go on. Because if that was me, I'd be like, just put it in the fire. You know, we'll, we'll just remember what we wrote and we'll pick it up once he's dead. But Catherine really thought that this was going to be her great life's work and yeah. her great contribution to not only England, but to Christendom. So it, it's sad that, I mean, I think we all know about this side of hers. We all know that she was big into her reform, but to what extent she was and just how involved in this intellectual movement she was, I think is very overlooked in favor of the more romantic, quote, womanly views of her. So oh, 100%. Anything we can do to get the word out there that Catherine wrote books. Catherine published books. And that is. Hates her own name. That's so kick-ass. When we when we spoke about the Reformation in the first episode, you know, we we spoke about it in um, you know, the the romantic view being the same as the historical view. I think it's fair to say there are three distinct phases of the Reformation. You know, when you get to the to the latter end of it, you you really are looking at things like the liturgical changes and at the people that Henry surrounds himself by, and it does become, if I'm honest, a little bit less sexy than it is at the start. 
until you start looking for the things that are going on in the background and aren't just centered around Henry. And that's where the fun is. And that's where we really see the greatest contributions. Like Catherine Parr's greatest contribution in her queenship was not just that she was married to Henry and that she was his widow, like the survivor quote. Catherine would have much preferred us to see her legacy as a Protestant reformer, a queen who was furthering her beliefs. And she really did that in her lifetime, maybe not through her writings as much, but certainly through her influence on Edward and Elizabeth. Edward went on to become a Protestant king. And, you know, during his reign, the Book of Common Prayer, which is still used today, took shape. And we all know Elizabeth's contributions to to the Church of England. That was really down to Catherine Parr. When you dilute it and go back to the very beginning, that was Catherine Parr. And I think she would be much more pleased that we recognize that as her legacy rather than you know, oh, she was the one who got away from Henry, lucky her. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. Next time, Kate and I will be taking a break from the Reformation to discuss wars and regencies. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and leave a review on Spotify, Apple, or now, good pods. Long live the queens. <laughs>